AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Uh, this morning's reading is from 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 15, and also 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome uh, to 2016. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but the positioning of the holidays this year made it seem like way too long. Um, I'm not I'm not Scrooge, but I'm so over it. Um, I'm, re- I'm ready to move on, uh, so get back in our normal routine. Uh, this will be the last sermon that we actually have in our break, and we'll be starting a brand new series next week. Um, I hope you'll be a part of that. It's really oriented about toward really kind of showing you how to really discuss the gospel in very relevant, easy, natural ways with the people that are in your life. I think it's going to be a, a remarkable series. Um, But today we're actually dealing with, I think, a very appropriate topic as you think of the new year. Um, The sermon's just simply entitled Sustainable Christianity. And I want to begin by asking a couple questions. Um, All of us that are Christians, we we know people that aren't Christians, obviously. Um, And we, we have to admit that there's tremendous variation in reasons that people have that they don't. They don't accept Christianity. They never have. It's rejected kind of deep inside them, and we get that. We understand that. We might not agree with it, but we understand that. But it's an entirely different matter when someone who has formally believed it stops believing it and walks away. See, that's, that's a troubling question. And for each of us that have been Christians for any time at all, it should be somewhat disturbing to us. I mean, it begs the basic question, you know, what is it that has brought them to a point that their Christianity or the faith that they formerly held wasn't sustainable in the long run? Is there a possibility that we can actually understand that to kind of protect ourselves? Now, as we begin, I want to use a little bit of the research that I used in a series that I did last year in 2015. Um, the Pre, uh, Pew Research Center in 2015 re- released a report that was entitled America's Changing Religious Landscape, and it was stating that 
Christians, particularly those Christians who hold kind of loosely to their faith, some people call it nominal Christianity, but of that sector of the American society, they are walking away in record numbers. There's Christians all over the United States, in the Bible Belt, outside of the Bible Belt, um, that are really just coming to a point that they don't believe it anymore. And this research report said this, the percentage of adults ages 18 and older who describe themselves as Christians has dropped by nearly eight percentage, point, eight percentage points in just seven years, from 78.4% in an equally massive Pew Research survey in 2007 to 70.6% in 2014. Over the same period, the percentage of Americans who are religiously unaffiliated, describing themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, has jumped more than six points from 16.1% to 22.8%. Now, the research report did affirm that roughly seven in 10 Americans still affiliate with some branch of Christianity. And so seven out of 10 people that you meet on the street are favorably inclined towards Christianity. They're not in a hostile state yet. And so the, the report did affirm that, but they also identified that there, there's some influences that are at work in our culture that are really attacking, especially those that are kind of on the perimeter of Christianity. Now, the study showed that the greatest religious growth or the growth in the greatest area of the American society in religion is to me among those who claim to believe nothing in particular. And the, the report also called them nuns. You're going to hear a lot about that probably in the next few years. Um, it, it, it's interesting because, because the research is showing that people are more conscious of what they're moving away from than they're, what they're moving towards. And so that tells you that there's something about their understanding of their faith that stops working for them. It worked for a while, it compelled them probably to make a decision in their life at some point earlier, but they come to a point where it's, it's no longer convincing to them. We don't know, the research report doesn't go into enough detail to allow us to know whether they never really believed it and they were just part of a sector and culture or in the Bible Belt, what have you, that would just force them into kind of professing. Maybe it was family pressure, we just don't know. But what, what we can tell from the research is that this group, to put it in perspective, actually represents 56 million people in the United States, second only to Protestant evangelicalism. So this is a huge segment of the culture. And I think it merits a little bit of concern. Let's go back to the question, how do you know whether your faith in Christianity is sustainable? Now, I know there's some of you here this morning, there's definitely some that are watching online that aren't Christians yet. And so for you, that question doesn't make a lot of sense. But for the rest of us, it actually probes fairly deeply into our own sense of assurance, our own sense of confidence, our own sense of anticipation, even for this year. I don't think it's all unrealistic to say that there are some of you sitting in this room this morning that won't be sitting here a year from now. So what is it that causes us to believe that our faith can be sustained? Now, 
The verses you just heard from 2 Timothy, both 1 and 2 Timothy as well as Titus are considered what they call pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. And the reason that they were given that name in the church is that they were written to two individuals that Paul really invested in heavily for decades. Paul knew that he, when he wrote this, this letter to, second letter to Timothy, he was awaiting execution in Rome. He'd been in prison, imprisoned. He had appealed to the Roman authorities, to Caesar. And when he finally got to Caesar, uh, Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Nero became a tyrant who actually declared Christianity um, in, in AD 67, he declared, excuse me, AD 64, he declared Christianity to be illegal. And Paul is in, in Rome at the time awaiting to die. So it's fairly certain Paul is going to be taken out of the picture. But he had already been investing in these two men, Titus and Timothy, for decades. And he's writing these final letters to them to give them instruction, some of the most clear and direct instruction that we find in the whole entire Bible in regard to just living the Christian life as well as what it takes to be a healthy, thriving church, what it takes to maintain a Christian community. And so these pastoral letters are of tremendous value to us when we ask that question, well, what is going to keep our faith surviving? Because that's what Paul was writing. He was handing the baton to these two young men in these letters. So when we look at this, I think we look at these verses, we begin to see two things that they kind of divide like a watershed into. These verses show us that if your Christian faith is going to be sustained, it has to have an individual sustainability as well as a corporate sustainability to it. I think the individual sustainability is the most natural to us as Americans, but the corporate part sometimes represents some challenging and even just outright blind spots to us. So let's look at what he said about the individual sustainability. As I already said, as Americans, the radical individualism that has characterized American culture, when you look at all other cultures on the earth at this time, as well as throughout history, there have been very few, perhaps none, that have been as radically individualized as the American culture. And so when you examine these parts of Paul's instruction, these are the parts that we're naturally prone to, we're naturally inclined to. We tend to receive this instruction more easily than when we look at the corporate side of it. Um, but his initial instruction applies to five areas that he said these are crucial. If you're going to survive as an individual, if you're going to survive as a couple, survive as a family, then you're going to actually have to develop and cultivate some strength in these five areas. Now, the first area in verse 8a is that he shows us that individual sustainability depends on knowing what you believe. I think there's very few things that we could say about the 21st century in America and this landscape that's changing so quickly and rapidly in the United States. There's very few things that we could say that are as directed, as, as pointed as what he said 2,000 years ago. He said that you're going to have to know what you're going to believe if your faith is sustainable. Now, what he's actually getting, about, getting at in verse 8a, the idea of shame that is used here refers to experiencing a sense of loss of status because of some, some particular event or activity. In other words, you, 
you're going to have to push deeply into your faith. If your faith is going to survive over the next few years, you're going to have to push deep enough into your faith that you really do understand what you believe and why you believe it. And if you are unwilling to do that, you're going to get picked off. It's just that simple. Now, what I mean by that is, in what it looks like practically, it looks like a, a woman who's willing to say, okay, when I grew up, I grew up in church. I grew up going to church with my parents. I grew up thinking that outside the box there were people that didn't believe in God, but that never was me. I always just tended to naturally default to the fact that there was a God. That isn't enough anymore. The constant barrage, the constant attack that we're beginning to see that is so often offered against Christianity has to be understood. Presently, I'm reading Sam Harris's new, new book, Waking Up. And it's remarkable to me that a man that is that intelligent in his early 30s um, can actually believe deep inside himself that, that his critique of Christianity is going to be enough to knock people out. Because as I study it, as I read deeply in it, I'm reading it with a man that I'm entering in the church right now. As I read it, 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 it is kind of frustrating to me that he has not run across a Christian that can explain Christianity deeper than what his perception goes. In other words, much of what he's saying about understanding your consciousness is in Christianity. And yet his confidence is enough that he can put it in a book and he believe that he's going to get away with it. So we're going to have to go deep. Now, to do that, it's proactive and reactive. There's times in life that you get challenged by the death of a loved one, a financial reversal or a diagnosis of cancer, what have you, and it's completely unexpected, and you need to react in that regard. But oftentimes, knowing what you believe is those are installments that you make proactively. And so when you get to those times of duress, when you get to those times of suffering loss, there's kind of a, a credit that you've built up, like a deposit into a piggy bank. And so you're going to have to go deep. If your faith is going to be sustainable as individuals, you're going to have to deal with your doubt. When you're uncertain and you don't really understand, you run into people that you work with or at school that are very intelligent skeptics, and they begin to pose questions that you don't have answers for. Answer them. Don't stop thinking. And so the first of the five things that he says here to Timothy about individual sustainability is knowing what you believe. The second thing is knowing your own calling and purpose. Now, I believe this one might be the most important one. Not because it stands out uh, philosophically or theologically, but because of the way it speaks to our culture. In verses 8b to 10, he's actually showing us that the, what the gospel teaches that we're not saved by our own efforts of being good avoiding the wrong things or doing the right ones, but by God's grace alone. In other words, we know that he, he called us out of a darkness, of a magnitude that held us completely enslaved. We were completely captive to it. And when he started to show us the truth, it caused us to begin to see through some of the, the cracks and the crevices of those things that we idolized and believed could save us. And... And in, in return, we pursued those things. But once we became saved, we began to see things much more clearly. But it goes beyond that when he talks about this. It teaches us that we are called by God. 
Now, the reason I think that this culturally is one of the most important things for us as 21st century Americans living in Denver is, is because you're called to something that's you. Now, that, I know that doesn't blow your socks off your feet, but what that does is it, it, it contradicts just a generic Christian life. You, you see, when I was young and first became a Christian, I honestly believe that the Christian life, and Hudson Taylor wrote a whole theology based on Galatians 2, verse 20 to 22, where we no longer live this life. And that theology basically inculcated in my mind and caused me to think that you're moving out. The moment you get saved, you're transitioning out of your life into a picture of Jesus. And it just became this generic, one, like gloves, one size fits all. But you see, the scripture in the gospel is much more specific to that. And what Paul is saying, there is a calling that you've been brought into. And that is distinctively knowing the things that belong to you. That's Ephesians 2.10. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. There's things that belong to you. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to the person on your right, the person on the left, the person behind you, or the person in front of you. They're your things. And see, the Christian life has be become far too generic for many of us. We have never discovered that calling. Our parents didn't help us. The church didn't help us. And so we're just kind of staggering and wondering along what it's actually going to look like for us to begin to live our own lives. And so if your faith is going to be sustainable, you're going to have to know your own calling and purpose. The third thing that he points out in verse 13 is that you're going to know, you're going to have to know how to apply biblical truth. It's not enough just to have theological concepts understood or possessed and even philosophical understandings at work in your thinking. And in verse 13, he's, the term that he uses for pattern is that that is used there is referred to a behavioral standard indicating that sustainable faith is more than merely understanding principles and concepts of Christianity. It's actually understanding how they work themselves out from internal to external. In other words, you need to know what it looks like to be a Christian on the outside, not just merely to hold its convictions on the inside. And so you're going to have to learn how to apply biblical truth. Fourthly, you're going to have to know how to defend your faith. This is one of the more obvious of them. In verse 14, he says, you need to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's a reference to all that Paul, over all those years, had poured into Timothy. All that he had given him, all that he had taught him, all that he had demonstrated to him in all their journeys together and their work together side by side, the talks that they had over coffee and all those different discussions that they had. He said, you are going to have to learn how to guard it to protect it. Now, this is what causes many non-Christians to say, well, here's the problem with Christianity. It's always telling you not to think. It's telling you to guard what you already know. Don't go any further. But you see, the problem with that is that the first observation, he's not telling Christians not to think. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying, you have been given something that you're going to have to figure out how to defend. And so the church has to always be reforming in that sense. It always has to be equipping you to be able to speak to all that's going on because the, 
the narrative that you're encountering out there, it's CU Denver, CU Boulder, CU anywhere, is a counter-narrative. And it's, it's never static. It's changing all the time. And so this understanding of how to defend your faith is, is really an interesting thing. It goes far beyond what we would initially believe it, it, just by reading it surfacely because he's talking about being able to engage intelligently because you have worked so thoroughly, so thoroughly uh, through what you believe. When your doubts have arisen, you haven't just stuffed them, you haven't just run away from them, but you've actually engaged in a culture that is willing to help you challenge your own faith. And so as James says in James 1, you're not going to be blown back and forth by the winds of discussion and the opinions of other people. You're going to have to know how to defend your faith. The fifth and the final thing that is, is really important here is that you're going to have to know how to handle rejection. In verse 15, he says that if Christian faith is going to be sustained, you're going to have to be willing to bear the disapproval and rejection of other people. Now, if there was a spectrum that we could put all of us on this morning, there's some of you that are so sensitive and tuned in to how other people think and feel that it's remarkable. It's like you're a radar dish. I'm not that way. I'm on the other, pretty close, to the other end of the spectrum, where... I don't know how you're feeling and thinking because I don't care how you're feeling and thinking. And so I, I become this really insensitive. To working with Tori over the last couple of years, who just left with her husband, Sean, it was remarkable how different we were because Tori could talk about some of the cases she was working. She would come to me for uh, consulting with some of the cases that she was consulting in, and she would weep with empathy. And it's like, I don't, I just don't get that. That was not a joke. There's sometimes I crack jokes and I have to tell you they're jokes. And then there's times you laugh that this not, that wasn't even funny to me. Okay, anyway. Those of you that are over here, it's going to be real easy for you to get discouraged. Because you're sensitive. You're sensitive to how other people think and feel. And because of that, you're going to have to toughen up. Because there's people in this, this society that will just snipe you. There's people that will be close and they'll turn on you. And it'll break your heart. And when Paul just simply makes this statement, all that were in Asia have left me. The term that he uses is really, really interesting because it's almost despairing. The term that he uses to turn away meant literally to turn away the ear. So it's not talking about a person that just simply is no longer in your presence. It's talking about a person that has forsaken what you formerly shared together. They jump the fence and they're off the reservation. And the reason that I say that sustainability is dependent on you being able to wear the disapproval of other people is because if you think that you're going to engage the city, your neighbors, even your own family, without suffering loss, you need to think again. The Christian life is a narrow gate 
that leads to a narrow way, as opposed to a broad gate that leads to a broad way that many enter that leads to destruction. Very different message. Very different message. And I fear that Jesus' church in many parts of the United States is teaching people how to go through the broad gate and walk on a broad, easy way. And many are going. But you don't really want to go where it leads. And so five things he sets out. Five things. And I think what we're seeing in the United States today, individual sustainability of the Christian faith is going to require radical commitment, not nominal agreement. You're going to have to go deep into your faith. You're going to have to take it seriously, or potentially it won't be sustained. Now, the second part flips really quickly in chapter 2. Corporate sustainability is very different. As mentioned earlier, our radical independence in our culture, it orients our thinking towards our individual responsibility, but it oftentimes at the very same time creates blind spots about what needs to emerge in our lives in the sustainability that comes from other people. And he cuts right to the chase in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when he, he starts with my child, which is a very significant term of endearment. It's indicative of, of just how devout Paul's relationship with, with Timothy really was, how genuine and legitimate it was. And based on that relationship, he encourages Timothy to draw strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus and from what he had heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. See what he just did? He said, Timothy, you're accountable. The things that you heard me tell you, they weren't only the things we shared in private. The things that I've taught you, there are other people that heard them too. And there's a degree of accountability that starts to emerge that we begin to see kind of in these verses. And so it's, it's actually the grace of God that, is, that he's extending to us that puts us in our faith. But there's something that's at work here that, that Paul is appealing to. There's a growth in understanding of Scripture that gives us strength. Now, Paul then... In verse 2, he actually begins to share with Timothy the key to corporate or community sustainability when he uses this term to entrust. Entrust what you have heard from me to faithful Christians who will be able to teach others. That's the corporate sustainability strategy. The term for entrust was a commercial technical term that was used of giving something of extreme value to someone to keep on your behalf. In other words, if there was only a few things, if, say if you can go back and put yourself in the context of World War II and you're fleeing your home and you can't take everything with you, what would you take? Probably the valuable things that aren't going to slow you down. And entrusting this treasure to someone else is the very thing that establishes the need that the, you need to have confidence in them. They need to be faithful people. You don't give that stuff to people you can't trust. You don't give them those things to people that you know won't take care of them or uphold their, their word with you. And so he shares with them this basic strategy. Now, the idea is broader than we think initially. Is it entails 
training that goes beyond merely teaching Christians doctrine, teaching them philosophical nuances and theological application. It includes the idea of preparing younger Christians to face the challenges of a new and changing culture. This is putting new wine in new wineskins. You see, it's hard for me to explain the generational flip that's going on in this letter of 2 Timothy. Because Paul knows he's about to be taken away. Within a couple of years, his head will be cut off. And he'll be completely out of the picture. And what he is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to learn from what I did. You need to learn how to deposit this treasure. And other faithful men and women will do the same. And so the whole idea that emerges from this instruction is the idea of legacy, the idea of sustainability. The survival of, of Jesus' church has always depended on the, dep- on the development of leaders. This entrustment has as its objective other people standing here doing the same thing because they've gone deep into their faith, because they understand you, they understand the city, They can speak Christianity in a way that is powerfully compelling and credible. But it doesn't happen easily. Now, I can tell you that over the past 23 years, L2 has been resolutely committed to the sustainability of your individual faith and the sustainability of our community of belief. We've done everything that we can to establish resources and direct them And those of you that belong to Alto, you know that we're not normal. Not just because the pastor doesn't care about what people think. (laughs) Now that was a joke. (laughs) We're not normal because we're not trying to develop all the programming that you tell us. Because we don't want your life overly engaged with the church because every decision you make to be in here needs to be out of there. And so what we've done is developing a counseling center, develop coaching and and practices that we have significantly invested in that will help you gain answers to what God's Word says about all of life so that you can spend the majority of your time engaged in the life that God has given you to live. We honestly do believe in teaching you to know your Bible, teaching you to know yourself, and teaching you to understand your mission, not the mission of L2. And we've had to be very disciplined not to succumb to philosophy that just says, well, let's just try to give them what they want and create an attractional ministry that would cause people just to be in here more than we can, we can actually accommodate. So for 23, 23 years, we've been trying to show you those things. Now... Our church church in 2015 really did make some remarkable progress. We we substantiated and emboldened some of the decision and strengthened many parts of our ministry, but the number one threat over the last couple of years that we faced as a church is that there's no succession plan for me. If I was to slip on the ice and hit my head or get hit by a car or dropped dead of a heart attack. What would happen here? And as we've done a SWOT analysis and investigation of what the greatest threat to our church is, 
It's something happening to me. And so as a result of that threat, in 2016, we have dedicated significant resources and established an agreement to continue our ongoing mentoring that we're doing of many of you that are in the, the congregation, but specifically to establish an agreement with James Rathman. And this upcoming year, James is going to actually come alongside to work with me as my executive assistant, assistant re replacing Tori and her absence. And we're going to actually start working on this. Now, we believe that James is passionate about his faith. He has a good, strong marriage. We believe that he meets the qualification and the criteria of a man that's pursuing pastoral ministry, but it's going to take an investment. His undergraduate degree is in philosophy at CU Boulder. I've worked with him for about 16 months. For those of you that are readers, the first book that I gave him to read was The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen, because I thought he's going, to think, he's going to sink or swim, and he swam. He's actually a very, very good thinker. He's presently enrolled at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, which he can do all by extension. And so over the next two years, he's going to be completing that formal degree while he's getting his training here. Now, why are we telling you this? The reason that we're telling you this is, number one, that you might be able to understand that we understand the threat. I am not getting any younger. And we want this ministry to be sustainable. But the other reason that we're telling you this is that this is going to take something that can only be done if we work together. And I hope that making this public to you would cause you to want to come alongside James and Megan. Because what they've got ahead of them, it's not going to be easy. But they need your grace when he's up here for me. They need to be able to know that you are praying for them, that you're supporting them. Now, over the next couple of months, James is going to do a very intensive training beat-up process at Denver County Jail. He's going to be teaching a class at Denver County, which I think is going to be very, very profitable for him through January and February. And then in the March-April time frame, he'll begin to preach for me occasionally. I'm not going anywhere. What we're looking at is how I can best invest my time. And by starting to invest and train up someone that can actually go into these places and take responsibility, it's going to allow me to do more writing. It's going to allow me to develop the strategic partnerships that we've developed over the years. And so it's our hope that you would see a ministry that is growing in its capacity to be a thought leader in Denver. I do not relish the idea of doing exactly what I'm doing now five years from now, nor do I think you should. We, as a church, we have to grow. We have to develop to be able to influence the city of Denver the way that we want to. And so this is a significant commitment. This isn't a swan song for me. It's not as if Nero's about to cut off my head in Rome. That was kind of a joke. But it's something that we need to be committed to. And I think it's going to be something for the better of our church, for the betterment of it. It will help us better to serve you and meet your needs as well as to begin to expand our influence in the city as well. So, there you have it. Welcome to 2016. Okay, let me take a couple of your questions and I'll be done. If we are rejected by someone due to our faith, should we just 
excise them from our life? Or should we continue to attempt to work in their life? Um, I, I think that's a, actually a fairly obvious question. I, you never know what it is that will actually work in another person's life. Now, without being too naive and Pollyannish about it, there are things that you have to pull away from. There are things. Driscoll used to have these uh, three categories. What must we accept, what must we reject, and what must we redeem? There's things that Christians have to reject. You can't find pole dancing teams for Jesus in the Bible. There's some things that have to be rejected or we can't be Christians. But there's a lot, far more things than some of us have thought about that we can enter into to redeem. And those are the challenging issues in our culture. And so just because you have, mo I can tell you firsthand, because I'm fairly confrontational, I can tell you that most of the con confrontation in my life is my fault. I don't know how to say things properly. There's Proverbs 25, 11. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in its proper season. In verse 12, like an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. I said a lot of stuff to a lot of people at the wrong time when they weren't listening. And it ended up in an argument. Your rule of thumb for 2016, stop arguing. I've never seen someone be converted at the end of an argument. Learn how to talk in a way that's winsome. Learn how to talk in a way that's compelling. And if you don't know how to talk, let us help you show you how. And so don't cut people off just because of confrontation. If you do, you're going to have to go out of the world. You're not going to be able to stay here very long at all. So, good question. Next one. Is there any data to suggest that churches have driven any of the 8% away? Sort of a, I don't want to be like these people mindset? Um, I'm not quite sure. I think any of us, I'm not exactly sure what that, that means. Um, the, the research is showing that the middle is dissolving. And so it's not as if you have a growth of Christianity or growth of atheism, what you have is a bunch of nominal people in the middle that kind of claim to be Christians that aren't, they don't need to do that anymore. And so the middle's dissolving. And so I don't think it's churches driving people away per se, but let's face it, churches do drive people away. They do, they can and they do all the time. And oftentimes it can happen for the wrong reasons, and sometimes it happens for the right reasons. There's some things that churches need to stand for, and if they don't, they won't survive. But there's other things that oftentimes churches take stands on, stances on that they don't need to, and that will drive people away. So I'm not exactly sure the nature of the question other than the fact that, that I think our own experience shows us that there are churches that become spectacularly engaging when they're able to articulate the Christian faith in a compelling way. And then there's other churches that don't care and they drive people away. That's just the fact of contemporary America. Last question. No further questions. Wow, I couldn't have handled another one anyway, so thank you. All right, we're going to pray. Um, and then we're going to have a period of time as we start our communion that if you haven't noticed, it's just usually an instrumental piece that allow you a few moments to 
kind of examine yourself. None of us are supposed to take communion. Number one, if you're not a Christian, you don't want to do this. The bread's not that good. That good. I'm talking about it all the time, but um, that, that was a joke. But um, communion is really a public testimony of a Christian. It's an association of our life to the broken body of Jesus, which is the symbol of the bread, and an association of our life to the blood of Jesus, which is the wine. And if you're not a Christian, it doesn't make any sense for you to do that. But if you are, we would encourage you to partake of it. This is an open communion, so you don't need to be a member of L2 to engage in it. But before you do, examine yourself. Perhaps most pointedly at the beginning of 2016, think about the things you resolved to do and reestablish those before God. Ask his help for you to be able to do them this year. Don't just make it through this year by the skin of your teeth. Don't be sitting in the same place making the same resolutions next year. Let's do better this year. I hope you'll join me in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just a moment in our church history. Um, it's hard for me to imagine 23 and a half years since this ministry started and, and all the lives that I've poured into over the years and many that that have gone into ministry in other places and some that aren't in ministry at all. But Father, we're standing on the threshold of a time just due to my own, my own life where we need to start making this count. We need to make sure that there are people, men and women, that are raised up that can take over the mantle of this ministry in the days to come. And to do that, we're going to have to dedicate our resources, we're going to have to dedicate our efforts and our energies or this this church, this community of Christians in Denver, Colorado, will not be sustainable. And so help us to listen acutely, accurately, to what it is that Paul told, told us as Christians that it takes to survive as individuals and what it takes as a church to survive as a community. Help these things to be pressed deeply into our heart, that we might not only understand them well, that we might be under, radically committed to them both as people and as a church body. I thank you for these that are gathered here. I just pray your richest blessings upon us now. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 